Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer-turned-psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello, and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today we have Dr. Ketchmarchik, and she is an award-winning computer science researcher, educator, and book author. After nearly 20 years as a computer science professor, she started a company nine years ago that provides independent evaluation services for academia and the high-tech industry. She has an amazing client list in education, which you can read about in our show notes. But now I'd like to dive right in and welcome Lisa Ketchmarchik. Welcome. Hi, thanks, Joni. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, my honor to have you here. One of the things that I want to highlight right away is that Lisa has a very prestigious award that she just won recently. And let's see, it was an award for the top computer science education research paper of the last 50 years, which for all intents and purposes is for all time, right? When it comes to computer science, right? So tell us about this. What was this and you know, what was the paper about and why is it so important? Well, the, the paper is sharing the results of a research study about misconceptions that novice computer science students have. And the study was part of a larger project that was funded by the National Science Foundation and the purpose of the larger study was to develop a tool that would help instructors diagnose where their students were having, where they were struggling and, and why. And so the little bit, of, little bit of background about why this is so relevant is that the first course in computer science is typically, is typically and historically one of the various, very hardest classes to teach. Because unlike the other sciences, students come in with probably no exposure in high school. And so they have a variety of backgrounds in the class. And computer science is also a very abstract topic. And so the mistakes that students make can often seem very baffling. And the mistakes are often symptoms of, an underlying, of underlying misconceptions that are not at all obvious. And so the paper reports on um, some of the common misconceptions that introductory computer science students have and the reasons why they have them. Interesting. So why have people been citing it so much? I think because this has been a problem for a challenge for instructors is pretty much as long as computer science education has existed um, for all the reasons that I just stated about how hard it is to start, you know, computer science and the abstractness of it and the fact that Students, as I said, they, the misconceptions that they display are off. The symptoms may have nothing to do with what's really going on underneath. And so this is one of the first studies, perhaps the first study that actually applied rigorous research methodology to investigating misconceptions and evidence and then provided some information about where these are coming from. And so it provided instructors with information about conception, misconceptions they may have seen, Plus, it gave them some ideas about where to look for misconceptions. And as I mentioned, it was part of a larger project about developing a tool, which, which was, in fact, developed to try and help, you know, faculty to identify these at scale with their students. Okay. Interesting. So, 
how does this research fit into your current work or, or does it? Well, it, it does um, in, this, in the sense that the misconception study presented faculty with evidence-based information to help them make strategic choices about how to improve their instruction so that it would be more effective. And the work that I do now in project evaluation is also about providing people and organizations um, research-based information to help them make strategic um, decisions about their projects. Um, probably what is project evaluation is probably the question. Oh, that's question. what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. What um, is project evaluation? Yeah. Right. So um, there are several kinds of project evaluation. There's actually project evaluation can exist in pretty much any field. I work primarily with computer scientists and engineers. They may be at universities. They may be in K-12 school systems. They can also be, you know, outside of academia. But the three types of evaluation that exist are when you have a project and you want to know if the project is having the impact that you hope that it's having. And in the, ca in the case of the, of the work that I do, there is often a formal research component that is being conducted by the people, um, the people in charge of the project. But there's a lot of other factors that impact whether this project is going to be successful or not. Um, and so the evaluation comes in and takes a look at what are their needs, what do they need to know, and I develop a customized plan for whoever I'm working with to um, figure out the best way to gather information to help them with their project. Yeah, okay, well let's start with uh, the academic ones. I mean, you're talking about uh, NSF projects, I think you mentioned right. that. Right. Uh, so what happens there when um, you do a project evaluation? Why would you need to do that? Okay, so the National Science Foundation projects, um, they can be either with the university college or they can be with K-12. But mm -hmm. nowadays, it's very, very difficult to get funding from the National Science Foundation for an education project if you don't have a project evaluation. Oh. And this is, this is in addition to the research component that the project is conducting. And so there are generally three types of evaluation. You can have a developmental evaluation, which takes place at the very beginning of a project. Like if the university wants to get a grant from the National Science Foundation and they need to develop an evaluation plan. Mm -hmm. So this is before they've actually started their research. So we'll work together to develop an evaluation plan and lay it all out. And this will help them get the funding. And then there's formative evaluation, which takes place during the lifetime of the project once they've got their funding from the NSF. And this provides them feedback on a regular predetermined basis about how various aspects of the project are going. And they can then use that information in order to adjust what they're doing and rather than waiting till the end of the project to hear about you know, what worked and what didn't work. And then there are the summative evaluations which take place at the very end of a project in which you're essentially looking backwards and giving a final report on you know how things went okay so you know here we are on reinventing nerds talking about people skills and strategies what kind of people issues come up during these evaluations well very often i'm asked to take a look at complex complex projects where there are a lot of people involved. And I can give you an example. I think it, it makes it a little more sure. you know, concrete. Um, I recently concluded a project with the Broward County Schools in Florida. And the project that they had funded, they'd been funded for was to 
integrate computer science into the elementary day classroom. Mm -hmm. And so there was a research project that was being conducted by some of the academics in order to take a look at, you know, the effect of, on student achievement on the elementary school students. Mm -hmm. However, this was a project that spanned the entire district and there were about 10 schools that were involved in, in implementing the project. And there are a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different people who needed to be on board in order for this project to succeed. So there are the teachers who are in the classes, there are the school principals, district administrators, school staff, li uh, literacy coaches, math coaches, wow. um, a whole slew of people. Mm -hmm. And all of these people go into, you know, impacting what happens in the classroom directly and indirectly. And so if you're creating a new innovative project and you're asking teachers to um, implement it, mm -hmm. a lot of other people have to be on board. And so what I did in the case of this project was I went on site to the schools, I visited all the schools, mm -hmm. and I held focus groups with all the teachers who were implementing the, um, the intervention. And I talked to their school principals and the district administrators and all the other staff, as many as I could get, to find out their perspective on this project, what their involvement was, what their attitudes were, what they thought about it, where things were going well, where they were struggling, Right. And did this all in a confidential manner so that they could be fairly open about, you know, how they felt. And I ended up learning a lot about the interactions of all of these people, not just specific to this project, but in the school as a whole. And so I was able to then take that information back in a confidential fashion to the project leadership and say, here's what I'm hearing about how this project is working and not working and what people need. and they were then able to make adjustments based upon that information. And I went back and did this again, you know, six, seven months later, right. visited the same people and was able to then see if, you know, any of the changes that had been made had had the impact, you know, to make things, you know, even better. Oh, and so that's they? it. Well, um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. So um, that's, that's typical of the projects I work on in that there is, just there's very often a formal research component and a lot of other moving parts mm -hmm. and a lot of people involved. And I will go and meet with those people using rigorous research methods in my you know, interactions with them in order right. to gather data and then feed it back. Yeah, well, a couple of things I heard on this, I mean, just to improve the communications there is that uh, people felt that they could trust you and therefore be honest, right? Because that's always a hard part. You know, you don't want to lose your job because, you know, you don't want to give feedback to this person and get it going that way. There's politics, whatever. There's so many reasons to not really say what's going on. And, and here you give them an avenue to actually explain the situation and then they can get this information fed through you. But you're also doing it in a way where you're not just listening to one person and letting them dominate everything. You actually have data so that you are finding out, you know, what, what really is going on and how many people it's affecting, things like that. So that's a great way to get some communications going. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yep. It, is, it is true. There's a, there's a, trust building is really what it's all about. So you're right, because okay. people, are, people are not going to speak to me openly if they don't feel that it's a safe environment. And so mm -hmm. I work very hard in order to, you know, build that rapport and tell them, you know, why I'm there, who I am, what's going to happen with the information that they're sharing with me, 
so that they know. Um, and whatever level of confidentiality or anonymity, you know, I'm able to provide them, I will tell them. And um, then there's a lot of other things, you know, that I, that I do, you know, along with, along with that as part of the reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, and combining that with using rigorous research methods, so it's not just anecdotal data that I'm gathering. Right. So I work very hard to prepare ahead of time with the specific mm-hmm. people that I'm going to be meeting with, what's the best way, you know, what's the best approach to take to gather the data that I need to gather and to have it happen in an environment where, you know, these, this relationship can exist so they will feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So part of it's just that you are a third party so that you're out an outsider coming in, they can talk to you without the repercussions. But part of it sounds to me like you're also very transparent about, like you said, the level of confidentiality and anonymity that you can provide. Because sometimes if something comes up, they're going to know it came from, you know, somewhere uh, so that you, you reassure them on what you can and cannot uh, do to protect them so they can still make that decision there. That's a really big trust building factor. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, and that goes, it's across the board for all of the projects that I work on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much, it's, it, I think it's very important to, you know, be, be straight with people about, you know, what's going on and why. Right. So this sounds like, like high intensive research environment. You also said that you do this in high tech. So how does this come up? First of all, let's go rewind and go, why would you be doing it in high tech? I mean, they don't have NSF grants that they're mandated to uh, comply to. Why would you do it for them? Well, some of the reasons that, you know, you would want to do it in tech are actually very similar to the reasons you would do it in another environment. Okay. You, you want to gather data to find out about some project that you're working on and is it having an impact that you want it to have? And in my case, it's generally computer science education or engineering education related project. You want to find out how it's going. And it's usually because you need to provide that information to someone else so that they will buy into your project. So for example, when I work with, with companies in, in the tech industry, um, something common that I, that, I, that I have done is a company has an internal incubator and employees are allowed to, you know, try out something new and do some work on a project that might or might not become a product eventually for that company. And they have to convince their internal, internal venture capitalists, we'll call them, you know, their oh, internal yeah. incubator people, mm-hmm. that they need, they be continued to have funding to work on this project. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in one recent case, working for, you know, a, a well-known high-tech company up in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, they were, in fact, working on a potential project. And so they called me in again for the reasons that you mentioned. I'm an external, an external source. Right. And I gathered formal data from them. It was a combination of statistical data in this case, as well as qualitative data. And it was all done remotely. And then I analyzed it and was able to talk with them about, you know, this is, this is how your, your testing of your project is, is going. This is, this is, this is what I'm seeing. Right. And then they were able to use that information to go and request additional internal funding. Okay, so what kind of people issues came up in that project? In that particular case, the data that I was analyzing was directly from the users who were testing okay. out their potential project. Right. So they were, in this case, it was a survey that went out to their potential user. Well, mm-hmm. people they had recruited to test their, test right. their product. Mm-hmm. So they filled out a survey 
and there were both questions that were about you know what do you think what's working what's not working there were demographic questions and some of these were what they call closed formed where they you know it's like multiple choice and some of them were open where they could just write whatever they wanted mm -hmm. and so all sorts of things could come up in those open-ended questions you know i love this because right this reason that reason or i really hate it or you know it was great until i got to this point and then it didn't seem right or it worked or just so i never met these people directly i never knew who they were mm -hmm. but this was um you know learning a lot about seeing the product through their eyes mm -hmm. so do you do this kind of thing outside of high tech as well any other kind of organizations I have done some work with nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, most of my work has been with, you know, either universities or, you know, K-12 and, and some in the high tech area. But I've done a little bit of work with um, nonprofits and local organizations. And typically it's a similar kind of situation because nonprofits are operating on a shoestring and they right. don't have very much money, but it's, they always have to go and ask for more. Right. So it's and, funders there as well investors yes yeah. yes hmm. yeah yeah so there's a great deal of similarity across the board in terms of why would you want to do an evaluation what can you get out of the valuation what's unique is that it's always customized to the project and it's customized to the people so one of the first things I always do is I meet with I meet with you know first if it's a potential client Okay. You know, I'll talk, I'll talk to someone for free for, you know, somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour just to sort of sense out, you know, what is it, what is it you need? Does an evaluation make sense? Mm -hmm. And then if there's an agreement that an evaluation does make sense, we move forward. I have very in-depth conversations with the leadership of the project, whether it's, you know, a university, college, tech company, nonprofit, very in-depth conversations to find out. What is your project all about? What, what are your goals and outcomes? What are you trying to accomplish? Why? Where might an evaluation help you? And then we design an evaluation plan based very much around what their needs are for this. So that, that way I will gather data for them that will be particularly useful for whatever they need. We talk a lot about what is the action, what actions are you gonna take with this data? And that helps to focus people on what it is they need to know. So you know, they say, we wanna know, we wanna know about, I don't know, I'll make something up. We wanna know about you know, whether, whether students find this, this particular innovation interesting. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk about what do you mean by interesting and flesh that out. And then what are you going to do with that information? And so right from the very beginning, we work out what, how is this gonna make a difference? You get this information that I'm going to gather for you, you know what you can do with it so that we're not gathering, you know, useless data. Right. Well, I'm actually really curious because you come out of a computer science background. I mean, you're heavily educated in that and you worked in research and teaching and uh, computer science for so long. How did you learn how to do this? I had a somewhat unusual background, actually, you know, academically. Um, my undergraduate degree was actually in theater and Spanish. Oh, and no kidding. Yes. Um, and then I went to work, I went to work in the computer industry, you know, after, after getting out of school and then went back to school later. But it turned out that 
I've always had interests in things that are non-technical as well as technical. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to when I did my PhD, I did a PhD that combined science education with computer science and had a good, strong dose of psychology in it. And so I had a lot of training in my dissertation studies in um, qualitative research methodologies, some educational psychology, lots of science education, um, you know, a whole lot of things that a computer scientist doesn't typically have in addition to my computer science studies. And so the PhD work that I did was actually a blend of all of these fields. And that's really what launched me into, you know, working with a foot in, in both places. Oh, it's so nice to hear how useful a PhD can be. (laughs) Sometimes people ask me like, wait a minute, did you make more or less money after you got your PhD and switched from engineering to psychology? Like, well, um, finding a way to combine it. Yeah, really uh, gives you an edge that not many people have. And um, so another thing that must come up for you, I mean, I'm sure people are wondering this is that sometimes you're delivering messages to your people that are hiring you that they may not want to hear. How do those kind of people issues surface and how do you have uh, experience and knowledge and how to handle that? Well, the ideal scenario is that nothing is a surprise. Oh, okay. And this is why from the very beginning when I start working with someone, one of the things I say is we need to start working on the evaluation planning at the beginning so that everybody knows what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're going to go about doing it so, um, so that they have, have buy-in to it. And so we can deal with some you know, initial issues at the beginning so that you know, somebody doesn't say six, eight, nine months later, you know, who is this person? What is she doing here? Why is she asking? This? <laughs> so that's the, that's the first thing. Involve okay. them in the development mm-hmm. you know, of the plan. Um, and then since what I prefer to do, again, ideally, is to have periodic check-ins and have, you know, formative evaluation in which I provide information back. If something comes up that seems, you know, concerning, I'll have a conversation right away and I won't wait. You know, we may have said we have quarterly check-ins or we have six-month check-ins or whatever it is, but if I see something, you know, bothersome, I won't wait. I'll say, let's talk. And so we'll have this conversation. And so you know, nothing, ideally nothing builds until suddenly it's a big problem. Now, occasionally, you know, you still have, you know, concerns, you tell people, you have, you have news that people don't necessarily want to hear. And then I think it's a, it's a matter of, you know, experience and learning the hard way. I mean, I have to say, I, you know, I I learned, um, you know, what are better ways to approach people and what are not better ways to approach people? (laughs) Okay. My surprise. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's part of it is, is learning as you go. Plus another thing that I did that I really have to say made a big difference is I took a workshop on conflict resolution. Oh, really? And it was hugely helpful. And that was after I had, you know, an interaction with, with someone that I wasn't happy with the way it went. And so I went and took this, you know, day long workshop on conflict resolution. Um, and it gave me some very basic skills on mm-hmm. how do you, how do you approach difficult situations and difficult conversations with people? And that has been a huge payoff to having done that. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, even with your high-level education, you're seeing ways to go back and get more for specific reasons and, and not being too proud to admit that you could use a little bit of uh, 
whatever training in a certain area. I think that's, yeah. that's really impressive. Um, you know, I have um, another question for you, just in terms of people who might be listening are in companies and, you know, what advice would you have to them in terms of if they uh, need to be thinking about improving their projects or considering project evaluation, you know, what are some things they can do um, to help improve their projects already when they're at work? Think about how do you know if mm -hmm. what impact your project is having. Do you have very concrete goals laid out? Do you mm -hmm. have very concrete outcomes laid out? This is where my conversations often start with people because they don't. You know, they, if I ask them, can you tell me specifically in one sentence, what is the goal of this project? A lot of times that's hard. And can I say, give me, you know, one sentence statements about what are the outcomes of this project? Mm -hmm. Very often that's not there. So, you know, at the very beginning, I would say, you know, think about, can you make one sentence, I often say, you know, one sentence grammatically correct statement <laughs> about the goal of the project. So it's not like a, a paragraph long sentence. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because if you can focus it down to a sentence, yeah. mm -hmm. then the work that you have to go through to be able to do that will help clarify your mind and get it really down to, yes, this is exactly what it is. And then that then leads to the specific outcomes because for any particular goal you then have to have specific outcomes that tell you you have achieved that and so again this can be very difficult people will you know want to start you know say going on for a paragraph or you know being somewhat vague but if you can pin down the specific outcomes that go for that goal you do those two things you are well on your way to you know having results that you want have yeah oh absolutely because you can measure the results and you can also be clear with your team um, what the expectations are and what the directions are that they need to be headed in and have a vision that everyone can wrap themselves around I mean um, yeah that sounds like really good advice to get clear at the front end and probably it would save you a lot of headaches later if you find that people aren't going in the same direction or you haven't really ended up achieving what you wanted to because you didn't even know what you were trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing to me, you know, how often, and maybe because it's hard, but you know, it's amazing to me right. how often people can't, you know, they don't have that. They've been working on a project for a long time and they don't have you know, these very specific goal statements and outcome statements. Well, that's a little challenge for our listeners and viewers because you might think that you know what you're doing but you're finding actually that it's surprising how often people really don't. So maybe going back and doing a little assessment of what your goals are would be, uh, are they measurable and focused would be something to take away from this, this podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been really interesting, Lisa. I think that you've helped uh, give our listeners some tips on what is project management, uh, project evaluation, uh, and, uh, both in terms of in an academic sense, you know, if they're going out to get grants, uh, an internal sense, just to have uh, being able to convince the people inside the company about their projects, whether they're working well or not, and also getting external funding or uh, approval. And I mean, you've also talked about just the challenges that can come up in these kinds of interactions, uh, both uh, looking at uh, the results that people are trying to get and delivering the feedback. 
to people on, well, you know, maybe you're not meeting your goals or some new things have arisen that we didn't expect. And uh, sometimes that can create conflict and it's important to be able to uh, manage that as well. Anything you'd like to add, like, for example, how people can contact you if they want to get a program evaluation? Well, one thing I'll, I'll say first, right before I do provide that contact information is that yeah. one of the one of the biggest misconceptions about evaluation is that it's 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 a it's a judgmental activity mm, okay. whereas i view evaluation as a partnership i'm not there to judge it is absolutely not what the purpose of evaluation mm -hmm. is it's there to be helpful yes um and in terms of contact information um my my email is a little awkward so i'll actually spell it Someday okay. I'll get it. It's, it's Lisa, my first name, at, at Lisa at Lisa K A C Z dot com. So it's, uh -huh. it's those, the first four letters of my very long Polish last name. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll have that in the show notes as well. Um, and I thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. I think we've run out of time. I mean, we really hit it. Uh, with all the information you shared. So thank you, Lisa, for being a guest on Reinventing Nerds. Thank you, Joni. And thanks to our listeners and our viewers. We're here at reinventingnerds.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.